Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitive Podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest, Michael F. Shine, and without a word of exaggeration or hyperbole, he is possibly the world's greatest hype artist. He is the author of the Hype Handbook and the founder of Microfame Media. Welcome, Michael. Well, thank you, Marcus. It's great to be here. Excellent. So today, the subject is hype. Before we get into that, would you mind giving the audience 60 seconds on your background, please, and how you got here? 60 seconds. Wow. I guess the 60-second version is that I was a kid who never, ever wanted to go into business. Uh, quite the contrary. Wanted to do anything but business. Ended up with his own marketing agency and really liking business and all because of my interest in what I call hype, which I define very differently than a lot of other people do. And um, yeah, there's just so much there that takes so much more than 60 seconds to go through. But I guess that's the thumbnail version. Absolutely. Well, look, what, what is hype in your definition? So I am well aware that most people consider the word hype to be a negative thing, that, that, that it's this idea of generating a bunch of hubbub and smoke and mirrors around garbage, around stuff that doesn't deserve it. But I define it simply as any activity that you do that gets large numbers of people emotional enough to take an action on your behalf or that you want them to take. And that can be a really bad action or it can be a really good action or it can be a really neutral action. But the math psychology principles that kind of lead to that are amoral. They're not moral or immoral. And I think a lot of times the bad guys understand it more easily. And it's up to us good guys doing mm -hmm. great work to sort of take that and accept it and use it for good aims. So effectively, it's influence at scale. Yeah, that's a great way to describe it. Okay. I mean, uh, we, we've seen very recent examples of it. Possibly the sale of the millennium was Trump's victory in 2016. Yeah. And uh, he's clearly a master of that type of uh, mass influence and communication, the name calling, make America great again, um, you know, all, all of these things that, uh, again, you touch on many of these issues in the book. But uh, how can one use it for good? Let's start with that. Well, first of all, I want to say something funny about the Trump thing. One of the things that led to this book is that I was, so I'm in this habit of, I am a big reader, as many of your listeners, I'm sure are, but I tend to read weird books. You know, I, I've read the, the business <laughs> standards, the seven habits of highly effective people, whatever, and those are fine. Yeah. But I, I read weird books on crowd psychology and biographies of, of just cult leaders and all kinds of stuff. So I was on a business yeah. trip in 2015, maybe 2016 reading this book on top of my bedspread called The Crowd by Gustav Lebon. And Gustav Lebon was this guy who was the original crowd psychologist. He saw the Paris Commune where they burned Paris to the ground for really no reason. And he wanted to explore why that happened. And I was watching one of the earliest Trump debates when he was considered a clown. There were like 16 candidates and no one thought he would win. And I was watching him and reading this book. And by the end of that thing, I was like, I think this guy could win. And I told that to all my He's friends. They're like, no way. I, I thought he might because everything this guy described in this 1895 book, Trump was doing. And that just shows how uh, universal the these, these things are. Uh, I was the same. I mean, um, what he did amazingly well was he fueled his base uh, around emotion. And they were the negative emotions of yeah. anger and fear. And uh, Clinton was a terrible candidate, um, but her message was an attempt at bad logic. And right, you right. cannot fight emotion with logic. 100%. We saw the same thing in the UK with Brexit. The Remain campaign tried to use some spurious logic, and the Leave campaign fueled it with anger and fear. And they did a fantastically effective job. And the net result is... Um, you know, the, the, and we, we've seen this over the last 30 years as well, the shift to the right in politics. The far right has really caught on to this amazingly effectively. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm curious how we might be able to swing back to a more moderate version of uh, politics. 
And the far, far left has done it very well. But but the the middle, to answer your question and tie it back to your original question, because I think it's very relevant, who, who are some examples of people who have done it for good? So something that Trump does to generate emotion, and I'm assuming what Brexit did from the admittedly less I know about it, but I know a little bit, is tribalism. You know, human beings, and we can go into why this is, on a very, very primal level, every single one of us, whether, we, whether we're the most touchy-feely hippie person in the world, we are all um, really wired on a neurological level to define ourselves against other things, against other kinds of people, against other ideas. So Trump does that by picking fights with other groups and bunches of people. I mean, I think at its most fundamental level, and forgive me if I get the details wrong, Brexit was the same. I mean, it was mainly about don't let yeah, absolutely. immigrants be on immigrants, our goal. Immigrants, Europeans. Yeah. Europeans, bureaucrats. Yeah, and Britain's always seen itself. I mean, I lived in Britain for six months when I was in college. I remember there was a guy there who was pretty conservative, and this was in the 90s. And I remember him saying that he thought of England as more aligned with the U.S. because England isn't European. And I had never heard that point of view. You know what I mean? So I think that's part of what it is, too. <laughs> so I'll give you a, a, an example, whether you think this is good or not. But the company Basecamp, I think, has used this same yeah. dynamic. So, so Basecamp is this project management tool. So I don't know, a very brass tacks, kind of boring thing, a technology that you use to manage your company projects. And before the guys who started that company... Jason Fried and DMM, as they call him, David Hansen Heinemeyer, I think, you know, project management tools were just these really complicated things by design. You know, every time a client told you to add a feature, you added a feature so you could manage projects more robustly. And then those features were passed on to the other clients. And that, and that was great. And, and everyone had this big, fat, robust tool. So the guys from Basecamp picked a fight with that. They didn't say our technology is better because it's simple. They wrote a book called Rework and wrote all these articles essentially saying the concept of work in the early 20th century is too bloated and too complex. They would say things like, fire your workaholics. Everyone's doing it wrong. We're killing ourselves for no reason. It's ineffective. And as a result, they never even had to say buy Basecamp. It was just a logical thing that you would buy this project management software that had four functions, you know, this very simple project management software. But when you talk to people who like Basecamp, it's not like, yeah, you know, I use Salesforce. It helps me out. It's good. It's like Basecamp. It's like a tribe. Like these people would wear the t-shirt. They would it's wear a cult. A, you know, it's a cult. And they did that through, through tribalism. So you can really pick a fight with an idea and generate a lot of the same effects. It's interesting. Throughout my career, I've been doing my own marketing. And what, what I found is being for something works, but being against something with, have, uh, with, with a gain on the other side is significantly more powerful. So much more um, powerful. Yeah. And uh, at the moment, I'm picking a couple of big fights. I've launched a community called Sales of Force for Good with 30 or 40 other people. And what we're doing is we're picking a fight with venture capital and private equity. Uh, we're picking a fight with corporate uh, executive culture because without fixing that, nothing else is going to sustain. And uh, picking a fight with the over-bloated digital marketing space, electronic marketing space, because of the inherent waste and interruption that it, uh, they cause. And it's interesting how... Those are the things that hook people in. Part of the challenge is to maintain the focus on the positive outcome that we're trying to create. So what advice would you give to find that balance in order to be able to deliver the intended outcome, which is to improve the uh, ethical performance of sales as a profession globally and create the conditions so customers can feel safe? There are two things that come to mind. One is that Picking fights in the way you're describing and that I was just describing is not the same as being a troll. You can get some mileage out of being a troll. I mean, you know, Trump, at the risk of being overly political, is a troll. I mean, he's mean, you know? I mean, he says things about people's looks, about trollish type things. And that can work. But that can also backfire, especially in the business world, where, where you really are judged on your outcomes. However, 
you know, I wrote an article a long time ago that helped launch my career called Why Gary Vaynerchuk is Flat Out Wrong. And, and just because to me, he personified a lot of the messages that I was against. But if you read the article, I was extremely complimentary of him in all ways but one. I said he was a fantastic business person, which I agree. I said that I was just amazed at what he'd been able to put together. I didn't insult his personality, his looks, his, you know, anything like this. I didn't, I, I took issue with his ideas. And so I think the first thing is there's a difference between being contrarian and being a troll. I think the second thing, and this is the subtle part, this is the art, and it takes a little bit of practice, is letting people discover the obvious connection between what you're selling and what needs to change in the world. So for example, very rarely did the guys behind Basecamp say, what's great about Basecamp is that it has X, Y, Z, you know, functionality and this and that and the other. What they did was say they spent 90% of their time talking about what needed to change in the world of business. And then 10% of their time saying, by the way, we own a software company whose entire ethos is designing products that are hyper simple. Yeah. And let the connection, people aren't stupid. You know, no one likes to be sold, but everyone likes to buy, right? Isn't that something that, that, isn't that an old maxim of sales training? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's how one of the ways to make that happen. So one of the themes I love in your book is the whole idea of the trickster. The story behind that is the early church was trying to overcome the hold of paganism. So they turned the trickster, who was puckish and mischievous, into an, um, a creature of e- pure evil. And I love the writing style, but also uh, I love the idea of engaging in benevolent mischief. So talk to me about that and what, what the, uh, the role of the trickster is in hype. Well, thank you for that. I enjoyed writing that chapter a lot, and I enjoyed that whole concept. I think a lot of times we draw lines in the sand between, quote unquote, being professional and whatever wild and woolly side of ourselves exists, right? It's like there are scumbags and con artists and and snake oil salesmen, and we don't want to be them unless you do, but I don't think you should. But for most of us, we're not going to be that. So instead, we're going to do, we're going to wear the blazer. We're going to speak with corporate jargon. We're going to, you know, give the sales presentation because all of that is, that's legitimate business. You know what I mean? That that's, that's just straight ahead business. And I think I've always been attracted. Like I said, I never wanted to be a business person. I used to want to be in the arts and I still mess around with that. But now I don't see such a line between the two. And I think the art that I've always been attracted to, small a art, you know, writing, music, is art where the the hype and and the and the mischief adds color and everyone's in on the joke. Like like remember the Blair Witch project? Yeah, absolutely. So I was like either in late high school or early college, probably early college when that came out. And the movie was fine, but if they had released that movie with a normal marketing campaign, it would have been pretty boring. You know what I mean? But that was in the early days of the internet. And you like really didn't know if this was real or not. Like things would leak out and they would say, you know, they they found this rare footage and these kids, they might've actually been killed. It's crazy. What happened? And oh no, it might be true. And then something else would come out. And it was it wasn't like we were being lied to. It was all part of the fun. You know what I mean? So I think every culture, and this is what you're referring to, had a God before Christianity, a minor God who was the trickster, who they were amoral. They weren't moral and they weren't immoral, but they always were the creator of art. You know, in the myth, like Hermes, he was a trickster and he created the lyre, which led to all music. And the idea was that most of life is linear, but sometimes you get in a quandary and you need an amoral solution. You need a mischievous solution and that's creativity. So I would challenge people to, you know, don't lie, don't steal, please. That's not what this is about. But that there's a way to be mischievous in a benevolent way and generate 
energy in a way that actually adds to what you're producing instead of takes away. I know that's a little bit vague and we can talk about specifics, but I think there's a general concept that's really important. Okay. So let me ask you the kind of question, the the common questions you get asked around uh, hype and building it. What do people normally ask you? I'm guessing one is, isn't this this kind of thing that hucksters do? I'm asked that all the time. Um, I'm also asked, uh, which is is similar to that. It's like, this is all well and good when you're starting a religious cult or Alice Cooper's manager, but you know, but I run a uh, sheet metal operation. So uh, how am I supposed to use it for that? And they're both good questions. And I have answers to both of them, but we, we can explore that. I don't know. Do you want me to answer my own questions? Or yeah, absolutely. Think- yeah. I mean, the, the first thing about, isn't this what hucksters do? So in a way, this was the reason I wrote the book, this question, because, you know, Mass psychology is what mass psychology is. You know, human beings are bombarded with tons of information all day long, and it's very difficult to sort through it. So our brains don't process it accurately. You know, our brains have evolved to process information in a way that lets us survive and and thrive, not accurately. At the same time, we are the single most social creature ever to walk the earth. You know, like, like, you know, even ants aren't as social as us. We're the most social creature on earth. So we experience group transcendence. We behave differently when we're among other human beings as we do on our own. And that's even true online. So we can either say to ourselves, look, I wish the world were differently. I wish human beings didn't process information the way they did. And it shouldn't be this way. So I'm just going to do things according to whatever, the more standard marketing books. But the fact of the matter is, it's not that, or I should say, some people are really good at taking advantage of, in a positive, or taking advantage of these flawed processes. And they don't have the compunctions about it that the rest of us do. They see the world like a chessboard. So it's not so much that these mass psychology things are bad. They just are. It's that certain people, psychopaths, whatever, narcissists, they're just very good at detaching themselves. So you have a choice to make. As long as you're ethical, as long as you don't lie, as long as you don't harm people, do you want to generate energy and attention around your products and services based on what works? Or do you want to base it on what should be, even if it doesn't work? So my goal is so many bad people get this stuff already and I see so many good ideas not getting traction. I just really wanted to A, make the case that this is a valid way to approach the world, hyping things up, and then show people how to do it. So, so that's the first thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the second question, yeah, you know, so it, it's funny. I think the base camp example is a good um you know, example of this. I mean, I drew examples from a lot of very colorful people, A, because they're fun stories to read about. And I wrote a book, but B, they tend to be better at it. You know, a lot of us, when we put our professional hats on, we decide we're not going to be those mischievous puckish. I love that word puckish, by the way, those (laughs) mischievous puckish people that we used to be. And I, I guess what I'm saying is you can see, I mean, I've seen Charles Manson, the worst person on earth, and Warren Buffett, who as far as venture, you know, as far as capitalists go, is a pretty benevolent guy. They've used the exact same strategies to advance their causes. So the stuff is devoid of, the content can be so different, but the fundamental driving principles that create influence at scale are the same. And you can be a sheet metal salesman and use it, or you can be Alice Cooper's manager. So it's really about the process or the methodology are identical, but the content and intent determine whether it's used for good or bad. Yeah, that's a great way to say it. Exactly. Okay. So do you mind talking us through, well, let's go with Warren Buffett's methodology. We'll call it that rather than Charles Manson's. So there's a strategy that I talk about in the book called Give the Babies Their Milk Before You Give Them Their Meat. And what that basically means, I didn't come up with that term, although I love it. It's something that various religious leaders have used 
when they talk about preaching their doctrine. So the idea is obviously a baby cannot eat meat. You have to give them milk because meat is hard to digest. And by giving them milk over a period of time, and then you introduce smushed up foods, and then you introduce solid foods and whatever, they can eventually digest it. So the worst way to promote a new, a really new idea, a new religion or a new idea or, or something that's very different than what people are used to is to just go right for the kill. Just so you know, hey, there are aliens living on the lip of a volcano and they'll give you your salvation. You know, <laughs> you got to start with the positive thinking message. You've got to start with stuff they're familiar with. And, and so you got to wrap new ideas in the familiar. So one example of that, and there are a lot of different ways to do that, but one example is that when Charles Manson was in prison the first time, um, he was just a lifelong criminal. He was abused a, a lot as, as a child. And I'm sure some of that trauma led to him becoming a monster. But he, um, you know, he was just like a low-level criminal. He was a car thief uh, and a pimp. And he was in prison. He was always a terrible student. Um, and he discovered the Dale Carnegie course in, in, um, in prison. And it's funny, they no longer offer the Dale Carnegie course because of this. So he enrolled in prison, I mean, in any prison in the United States. So he enrolled in this course and he became a star student. And the part that he really liked the best was the chapter that said, um, basically make the other fellow feel like the idea is his, which means you don't say, this is what you should do. You slowly massage people into things. You let them present ideas. You kind of nod your head and say, maybe at the ones that aren't great, that aren't what you want. And then when they get a little bit closer to the way you want, you say, oh, that's interesting. What do you mean by that? And by stages, you let them come to the decision on their own. And that's a version that give the baby that is their, their meat. So basically when he emerged from prison, he saw all the hippies and he did another version of give the babies their milk, not meat, give them their milk. He became a hippie. He was a little bit older, but he dressed himself in the peace and love garb that people were yeah. used to. And, you know, by using these two te techniques in tandem, he basically got middle class kids. Famously, one of them was a prom queen or a homecoming queen to commit horrible acts of murder and become a cult. And Warren Buffett, you know, he, he similarly, he, he always says that, you know, he went to Columbia and this and that, but the only diploma he has on his wall is from the Dale Carnegie Institute. He uses this strategy everywhere. You know, he, he is constantly gauging the psychological temperature of a room, getting people to give up good information, getting people to do what he wants, using this exact same strategy and for very, very different aims. Very interesting. If we look at... In the book, you talk about using a technique called asking for micro asks. Can you expand on that? Because that really caught my attention. You know, there's an old sales technique called the foot in the door technique. And, and it's maybe a little outmoded, but it does work to an extent where you try to get them to let you in the door through a very small ask, you know, can I have a drink of water? And if they say yes to a small thing, they'll eventually say yes to a large thing. And I think that's a little outmoded, but the concept is sound. It's that when we are confronted with a big decision, we balk, you know, human beings are evolved to be very scared of change. When, when, you know, when you see orange and yellow everywhere within a second, that's a forest fire. But if it happens gradually over a couple of months, that's that's autumn, that's fall, right? Yeah. So the idea is figure out where you want to go and then break down the decisions you need to get someone there and be patient over a very long period of time or even a somewhat long period of time. So if you want someone to join a cult, you know, you don't just say, hey, will you join my crazy end of the world religious cult? You say, hey, you know, um, I noticed, you know, you're, you're new here at college. Uh, we're getting a bunch of friends together to have some, um, have a vegetarian meal. Would you want to come by? A lot of really interesting people are going to be there. Yeah. And then when they get there, hey, you know, we're doing a study group every Friday. A lot of these same people will be there. And it's a really good way to get your head in the game. Would you want to do that? And before they know it, they're in an end of the world religious cult. <laughs> well, it's really interesting because um, for the last 17 years, I've been training a sales methodology. And uh, one of the tactics I've found incredibly powerful is when you turn up to a prospect's office, 
you sort of pat yourself down and say, I'm so sorry. I couldn't borrow a pen, could I? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a great, yeah. I, I left my pad in the car, silly me. Could I borrow some paper? But by getting those small asks up front, then what happens is it opens them up. Then Alec Baldwin got it wrong in Glengarry Glen Ross. It's not always be closing, it's always be contracting. So what you do is you get little micro agreement after micro agreement after micro agreement. And by the time you get to the end, the decision's already made. It's not about trying to make one big decision at the end. At the end of the sales conversation, you might finish with something as complicated as, so what would you like to do? Where do we go from here? What, what would you like to do next? Absolutely. Any, any of those. And then there's no resistance because you've co-developed the solution with them through lots and lots of little agreements. I do that in my own sales process. And I think this is a great illustration of why these concepts can be so ethical because I really feel like I'm doing people a service in the way that I quote unquote sell. So, you know, I own a marketing agency and I do this to to influence, but I don't really do it to persuade because some people say no to this, right? So like, I'll always start out with a very informal conversation because what we do as a marketing agency is quite different or quite more specific, quite, you know, it's hyper-specific. So we're not a match for a lot of people. If that initial conversation, if there's nothing there, I'll try to be the guy that everyone is happy to hear from when I call. So I refer them or I give them some advice. And then after that, what I do is I do a little bit of the work. I do a two-hour strategy session that before I figured this out, I used to charge for that. But my whole thing is the only way I know how to convince someone is showing them how my brain works in that session. And all I ask that they do is set up another meeting for me once I put that work together where they tell me where their head is at about where we're going. You know what I mean? So so that's another version of taking people through stages instead of saying, you know, so uh, are we going to do business together, buddy? I mean, that that just, I don't know. I don't find that too effective. Well, what's interesting, uh, someone who's been very influential on me over the last year is a chap called Bob Master. And uh, he describes the customer or the buyer journey very differently to the way most corporates uh, operate because most corporates bombard you and try and break through the noise. But what he's observed is that people will make space for an idea and then they learn passively by tripping up over content, seeing the odd video, Uh, eventually, when they've learned enough, then they start to look actively and then they compare and contrast and they make judgments on the basis of what they exclude. So they take stuff away from the solution and what's left is what they end up deciding on and buying. And uh, again, if you don't meet customers where they are, whether you're in marketing or in sales or manufacturing, whatever, then what you're going to find is you'll meet a lot of resistance. I agree. One of the things that I loved about the book is it's really a handbook to help you work out how to neutralize that resistance and how to meet them where they are. So talk me through your thinking process uh, in terms of how you came up with the structure of the book to deliver uh, that kind of message. Thank you for that. That, That's really nice to hear because ultimately the mission of the book, while there is some really colorful stuff in there about how to generate emotion and attention in in a flamboyant kind of way. At the core, it's about building a group of people around you that are so excited about what you do, that they almost don't have to buy from you, they're going to sell themselves into it. And that isn't selling everyone. You know what I mean? Like, like I use examples from rock and roll, because they're so good at this, but Alice Cooper's manager, he wasn't trying, he wasn't trying to be the Lawrence Welk show. He wasn't trying to get everybody in America to, to be a fan of Alice Cooper. He was trying to get stoner kids to be a fan of Alice Cooper, but there were enough of them. You know what I mean? So not everyone is right for you. And I think the framework, I mean, it really came from a personal journey that I went on. I'll try to give the Cliff Notes version of this, but I mentioned that I never wanted to be in business. I mean, I I played in bands and things like that. And we had a band in New York when I was in my early 20s called The Act, which um, we certainly didn't ultimately become famous, but we sort of did well compared to what people thought we would do. We used to sell this club Arlene's Grocery out 
on Wednesday night and have a residency there. That was the the place where the strokes got their start. And it was around the same time. Um, we were on TV once we were on the cover of New York press. So, um, (laughs) and, and I'm not a fantastic singer or musician really. And and I think a lot of the attention we got, we were fun, but I think we were good hype artists. And we used to say that we never said marketing. We'd say, let's hype this up. So, you know, we got ourselves on Showtime at the Apollo because we knew we would be booed off, you know, things like that. So, (laughs) Um, so that was fun. The guy from Kid in Play interviewed us. He was like, what, what happened there, boys? Like, yeah. So, um, <laughs> so um, and, you know, eventually I had to get a job and I got a corporate job. And I started to, after my initial resistance, do well. And the first three years were even a little bit fun because I was learning a lot. But by year eight, I was just completely miserable. And I left. I had had all of that sort of like punk rock energy drained out of me. And I thought I had to be like a professional. So when I started my own business, which wasn't a business, it was a writing practice. I was selling corporate, you know, like copywriting. I read all the marketing and sales books and I was trying to do it in a really like official way. I forgot there was another way to do it because this was the business world. And then I, rem- I don't know, I actually passed by that club I used to play at. And I had this revelation because I was very desperate. I was losing a lot of money. And I realized that like, maybe I could hype myself up instead of market myself. And I did. And it started to work. So then I became a student of that. So I start, I've done, I started to do the research well before I did the book. I had this note card cabinet, this big thing of note cards. I stole this idea from Ryan Holiday, who's a yep. big guy. It's kind of a thinker and a marketing guy. And every time I would read a book about these crazy tactics, I would see what category it fit in. I would figure out are there like commonalities and then I would do experiments and if it didn't work I would discard it and if it worked in my context I would keep it and these categories started to form and and I started to see that whether you were talking about a rock band manager a cult leader or Richard Branson and Warren Buffett it wasn't all over the map there were like these through lines and there were only like 12 of them so then when it was time to write a book and I felt that would I'm a writer before I'm anything and I wanted to spread these ideas to more people. I was like, this is kind of like a book that writes itself because there are really like 12 principles of hype that you can learn and that you can practice. Um, and so that was the way I came to it. Fantastic. Thank you. One of the themes that I really liked is that people get very disorientated when change occurs around them. So understanding those people who are disaffected by the change is a really powerful mechanism for building a following or a community. Talk to me about that. I guess I'm not totally sure of the question. Are you saying how do you break through that resistance to change? Partly, but also how do you identify which changes you should be targeting? I'm guessing that's through experimentation and testing. I think, and I don't know if this is answering the question, but I think there are two different ways to approach this depending on the circumstance. So a lot of times we find ourselves in situations where it feels like change, but it's not change. In other words, I'll I'll use you as an example, right? You're a sales trainer and you're real good at it and you know you can get people results. However, there are other sales trainers and because what works works, you're not radically different than everybody else. You're just good. You're just good at what you do, you know? So if you're in a crowded space where the differences are minimal and you're good at what you do, that's where you need to almost create the impression of more change. You need to be flamboyant. You need to use theater. You need to use drama. You need to use storytelling. You need to use staging. You need to use picking fights. However, If you're in a world where what you're doing is truly new, you're trying to affect big change, you know, whatever, Steve Jobs trying to get people to carry a computer in your pocket that replaced every other tool that they had, you know, trying to get them to use fully electric cars, whatever, you know, at Mm -hmm. that point, you need to, while all of that theater and stuff is helpful, 
you need to use some of those other techniques of breaking down their resistance slowly. Like if you remember, Steve Jobs didn't introduce the iPhone right away. People had tried to do that. There was a thing called, I think it was general magic and it failed because people didn't recognize the need. He started when he came back to Apple, first he introduced the iMac, which was just a computer, but it looked better and it was easier to use, but there were already other computers. Then the next bit thing he did from there, you know, were the iMac laptops, then the, then the um, iPod. iPod, you know, yeah. which, which was just an MP3 player, which was already on the market and people were already stealing music on Napster, you know, digital music was already accepted. So he just made that easier to use. And it was only then, then the iPhone was a better version of the iPod with more functionality and the original one didn't have apps. Yeah. And then from there it was, the iPad, which I remember, like I have a 10 year old daughter and she calls her iPad, her baby. She's like, it's her favorite thing in the world. <laughs> but I remember at the time when it came out, some people were like, what's so big a deal about this? It's just like a big fat iPhone. Mm -hmm. So I think if he had come out with the iPad first, people wouldn't have used it. So again, it's really about small iterative steps and bring people along by building on what's already familiar. The more uh, new it is, the more of a change it is, the more you need to be incremental and the more you need to wrap it in what they're familiar with. The more similar it is to stuff they're familiar with, good but similar, the more you need to cosmetically set yourself apart in big ways. Understood. I mean, instinctively, human beings look for what feels familiar. If it's new, but they're also interested in novelty. So right. if you're going to if you're blending into the woodwork, that's not good either. If you're just another sales trainer, how are you going to let them know? But if you're a sales trainer who, who's picking fights and has a muppet in it behind you for people who can't <laughs> see and is flamboyant and whatever, that goes a long way, right? And again, I, I think one of the uh, other really interesting things that you talk about uh, in the book is about creating your own language or jargon. One of the things that I've been taught is never use jargon in the sale, but because it can be very confusing. Again, I can see the value of it, sort of creating your own language or nomenclature so that people who are in the in-tribe speak using that, and uh, anyone who doesn't is an outsider. Well, that's the nuance that people miss. It's not never use jargon in the sale. It's never use corporate jargon. That, In other words, when you go into a sale and you start talking about outside the box solutions and core competencies and all of this stuff that, that is really meaningless language that everyone else uses, that's just a way of obscuring meaning. You know what I mean? I mean, that's just a way of seeming smart and not being clear in your thinking. But... If you say to somebody instead, listen, there's a new concept called X, right? You know, in other words, if you're coining something and letting them in on the secret, not using it to make yourself seem smart or obscure meaning, but to actually let them into the club, to your point, and being very clear about what that jargon stands for. Every religion has rituals and jargon, every in-group every pop culture movement, you know? I mean, you, you, you can, I remember like in the punk scene, there would be massive debates on like, what's the difference of emo and emotional hardcore and punk? What is straight edge versus, you know, not straight edge? I mean, this stuff that would mean nothing to anybody, but people would spend 10 hours talking about it. Very interesting. Okay, because again, as I look through the book, I found myself having done many of these things, but not necessarily systematically. So using data, creating little aphorisms and punchlines, using statistics. So you're very, very powerful, especially when they're reinforced repeatedly. And I think one of the central themes in the book that is very, very clear is the power of repetition. Simplicity repeated. It seems to so be important. at the heart of it. Yeah. I'm going to tell a story that I wasn't allowed to put in the book. It got edited out, but it's a great, it's a great story. So there was this guy named Ernst Hafstengel who was German and he went to Harvard in either the teens or the twenties, you know, as an exchange student. And, um, 
mass culture wasn't as easy to access then. There really were national cultures because, you know, now every culture is almost the same because of the internet. But at the time, no one, there, there were real differences between cultures. So he got into the Harvard culture. He had never experienced it. And one of the things he thought was really fun was American football. He had never heard of it before. And he was a musician. So he even became the, um, like the piano and organ player for the football team. Right. And something he noticed is when, and you know, Harvard, I mean, football basically started in the Ivy league, the American football and the American Ivy league. And especially back then. So um, people would yell at like the big Harvard yells game, fight Harvard, fight Harvard, fight, fight, fight. And the whole crowd would get worked up into a frenzy. And these like very sedate college kids would just like get fire in their eyes. And it would be like this thing. So he went back to Germany and whatever, the economy collapsed and he got into the, this new movement. He was one of the first followers of this young guy named Adolf Hitler. And as the movement expanded, he was one of the earliest ones. He became a confidant of Adolf Hitler and saw it expand. He became one of the early national socialists. And when the movement started to grow, Hitler asked him, he's like, you know, we just need something to really like get people fired up. And he said, you know, when I was in Harvard, I used to see this thing. They would chant, fight Harvard, fight Harvard. And Adolf Hitler got all excited and he got, we got to do this. And that's how Sig, Heil, Sig, Heil, Heil Hitler, Heil Hitler. Just repeating, it almost doesn't matter what this stuff is. It's like, it's almost better if it's vague, like make America great again. I'm not comparing that to Sig Heil, but I'm saying no one even knows what that means. It's this vague future focused language that's just repeated. I mean, you would see it. Trump would, someone would give him a logical argument and he would tweet out in capital letters five times, make America great again with exclamation marks. And so just, you know, as, as babies, language is a really hard thing to learn. If you think about it, it's just a bunch of meaningless mumbo jumbo, like noise. Yeah. And what we do, and this is amazing, they, they've done studies on this. Babies run statistics in their head. I mean, they don't know they're doing that, but they run patterns to try to pick up sequences of the same sounds. And so we're really drawn for our entire lives to things that help us do that. So that's why we love repetition. That's why we love rhyme. That's why we love alliteration, like things starting with the same letter. Like these things are very primal in us because they originally helped us learn language. So if you can play on some of these superficial, because we're linguistic beings, if you can use some of these superficial oral tricks, they're not very superficial. I mean, they, 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 they really have a lot of power because we're wired for that because what makes us human is language, right? And that never goes away. So what advice would you give to someone who is trying to develop those slogans, that uh, language, how can one go about developing it so it has that kind of attraction and power? I would say it's really important to figure out how to come up with an encapsulating kind of slogan or Im- and image that's very simple, very easily repeatable, and very something that people can put their own meaning into. So I, I you know, I, I think a lot through stories. So, I mean, another story is Timothy Leary, who kind of started the psychedelic movement. I mean, for a long time, he was just this like esoteric kind of college professor. And he had this group of like middle-aged people taking LSD with him. And he thought the young people of America needed to get into that. So he talked to Marshall McLuhan and he, and he said to him, what should I do to get this across? And Marshall McLuhan said, you're being too heady. You're, you're do, giving these big lectures, you know, and, and people aren't into that. He's like, you need a very vague, repeatable sort of slogan. So look at Madison Avenue. So he thought about it and he came in with, I'll get a, a tune in, turn on, drop out. So if you think about that, what does that really mean? I mean, it's not completely unrelated, but it's alliterative, T and T, you know, t- tune in, turn on. It's very short words. But you can ultimately put your own meaning. Are you dropping out of your parents' society? Are you dropping out of college? Are you dropping out of reality into the psychedelic world? Are you, you know? And it's like, make America great again. What does that mean? Is it is it going back to a time where Black people didn't have power, where women didn't have power? Does it just mean that our economy is good again? So I think what you want to do is come up with a slogan that, you know, rhyme works. Sometimes we feel cheesy doing this. Rhyme 
alliteration, short words, something that can be easily chanted and repeated. And something that while it ties to what you do is vague and future focused, that it promises a dream in the future, you know, and promises possibility and also commands work really well, you know, nuanced speaking is make America great again, declarative statements like the 10 commandments, do not kill, do not steal. This is a, it's a tall order, but if you can crack this, it's really, really powerful. Again, I think one of the other things that if we think about Make America Great Again was the red hat. So totally. the visual symbol was incredibly powerful. So how do you work visual symbolism into developing your hype? Similar, bold, striking images that can be repeated. So there's a rap group from the 90s. They're still around, but they were the biggest thing ever. They're called Wu-Tang Clan. Have you ever... Heard I've heard of them. of them. Yeah. So the thing about them was the guy who started that group called his name was Riza. He he basically got all the best rappers of Staten Island after many of them failing at things. And he said, stick with me for five years and I will make you all stars. So like the Wu-Tang Clan is a clan. It's not even a rap group. Like they have a fashion arm that they have all this weird mythology. But one of the things they did, they look up their symbol. It's this um, yellow, like stylized W that looks like a martial arts symbol, but it, there's nothing like intricate about it. It's like you could make it with a stencil. So people could make, people can make it, like not just them. And they stuck it on every lamppost in Staten Island at eye level. And then other people started to do it. So it's something that it's an easily replicatable symbol. Get rid of the detail, make it striking, make it something that once you develop fans, they can make their own and just repeat the heck out of it where people can see it. Okay, so to summarize what I've learned so far, make yourself a totem uh, against something that is clearly wrong or that in your people mind. Will, in, yeah. in your mind and in your audience's mind. Yeah. Create symbolism and language that is simple to remember. Repeat it consistently and make it repeatable for other people and don't be afraid to break away from the crowd because the danger of being one of the crowd is you just become part of the noise and invite opposition because it's the opposition. And again, we only have to look at what Trump did and uh, Hillary's response with the, uh, the deplorables um, that reinforced their position. Um, yeah, they call it, themselves deplorables now. They absolutely. Do. Yeah. So that was a massive backfire. Yeah have people talk about you behind your back, be for something that is against the mainstream in the same way that Basecamp did by just taking out all the over-engineering, simplifying things, and bring it back down to the basics. And make sure that as you bring people into your movement, then you bring them on, on in incremental steps and add some mischief because that makes it fun and it's not moral or uh, immoral, it's amoral. Um, is that a pretty fair summary? You got a lot of it, yeah. I mean, that's um, there's other stuff as well, but you got a lot of the main stuff we didn't discuss on this podcast, but you've really synthesized it quite well. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, good. Michael, what did I miss? I think a big one is theatricality. You know, a lot of times we think that People who are theatrical are, are wearing big costumes and fireworks and fire shooting out of the ground. And if you're if you're not Madonna or whatever, that doesn't really apply to you. That doesn't apply to you in the sheet metal industry. But you know, the, the original theater was ancient Greece and there were no props. It was just people talking. Theatricality is just about drop, is about tension and release. So um that's good talking to an English person. We can talk about. Winston Churchill, who basically got an entire nation to almost invite being bombed. You know, if you talk to people at the time who were part of the Blitz, who weren't, whose houses weren't bombed, yeah, life was tough, but they were almost proud of what was going on because they saw themselves in this like primordial struggle. You know, the greengrocer was a great warrior against the German hordes. You know what I mean? And they were proud yeah, of that. The land army. Part of something bigger. 
that dig for England, the land army. That's right. Exactly. And, and you know, England has a very long tradition of, of warrior culture, and maybe they had lost some of that over the years. And for, for, a, for a regular green grocer to say, we will fight on the fields, we will fight on the shores, that was wonderful drama. And I think it might have helped win the war. So speaking in dramatic terms, studying dramatic structures, taking care of your staging, dressing the part, that doesn't mean wearing a suit and tie to be professional. It means what image are you trying to convey? And are you living that out in the way you decorate your space, in the clothing you wear, whatever? I think that's pretty important as well. Just remembering a couple of other things. I mean, when I had my training business, I had myself a handmade bullwhip made out of red and black leather for profit and loss. And there is nothing better than a sonic boom to stop people talking. That's theater. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I remember I was receiving uh, an award for um, my sales performance and I pulled the the whip out of my uh, trousers and the CEO and one of the very senior people both just ran in opposite directions. (laughs) And the whole uh, lunch hall stopped. I get theatricality. I think a couple of other themes that I really liked in the book is tell people some cold, hard truths as well. Yeah. Uh, Especially to remind your followers why you're doing stuff. And if you don't do that, then it just becomes a a place of complacency and it becomes an echo chamber. You've got to wake people up to the reality that, 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 or your reality, that if they don't change, then they will fall into trouble. They'll, you know, they'll become extinct or their businesses will fail. And um, you, you have to hold up the ugly mirror, which is something I've definitely done throughout my career. Yeah, it's important. And I mean, I guess another one, there, there are quite a few in there. I'm sure we're not going to hit them all. But another one is creating a rock. You know, a, a lot of times life is inherently uncertain and that's really troubling. And if you can create some sort of perception that you are an un- you or what you've created is an unchanging force of certainty, that's really important. Like if you look at the business books that do well and lead to big consulting careers, they're not just the everyday like management strategies for the 21st century. It's the, the seven the habits seven of habits. highly effective. Right. It's, it's like this thing. It's like a Bible. It's like, if you follow these seven habits, you have all the answers you'll ever need to do well in any circumstance. So that's the manifesto. Right. I mean, that that's, a, yeah. And being very, very confident in your presentation. You know, critical thinking is really important for life. But for hype and for marketing, speaking in black and white terms works a lot better. It's more persuasive, taking out a lot of the nuance. That's really interesting. Okay. Um, sadly, we've come to the top of the hour. Um, oh, this has just this flown by. Yeah, uh, it has been, absolutely. What, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? I'm wrestling w- with a problem that's equal parts stressful and equal parts fun. You know, um, with the book have come some potential opportunities. You know, I, I um, make my living through the agency and I love doing that and I'll never stop doing that. But as I said, I'm at core a writer and, and dare say a thinker. And I'm trying to figure out, because I really want these ideas to reach more people. I mean, in, 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 in the light of some of the political developments that have gone on recently, it's become really important for me to put these tools in the hands of lots of good people. And while working with big corporations is great and is part of, is part of that, I'm trying to figure out what are some other ways to spread these ideas? Is it speaking? which has been a little difficult in the pandemic, but that's hopefully coming to an end. Is it some sort of workshop offering? We just launched our first workshop. So I'm, I'm struggling with maybe what the next iteration of my life looks like in that regard, which is an exciting struggle, but a struggle because it's new. What do you love doing when uh, you look forward to doing it? When you do it, time flies. You do it well, you get great feedback. And when it's over, you can't wait to do it again. I really love reading, writing, and researching. You know, I mean, I always hear these people who say, I need to read more. I have this goal of reading 20 pages, whatever. And I, to me, I'm like, I like reading so much that 
I feel guilty when I read. And it's part of it's business books, but even novels and and just strange books. But I feel like reading is reading. I mean, if I was only reading John Grisham books and that was all I read, no, fine. But I think creativity for me comes from digesting a lot of disparate material. But um, if I could have a life where all I did, if, if, if I woke up in the morning, wrote, then I read for the rest of the day and took notes and organized the notes and then ended the day by coming up with ideas on a video camera that other people transcribed and turned into actual stuff, I think I'd be really happy. Why not do that then? I, you know, one day it's hard to get to, you know, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot that goes into that. You're on the Island of Sunday Isle. I hear what you're saying, but what I mean is that's the goal, but you know, I'm not, a company with 400 employees yet, right? So that that's the ideal. So I get closer to that with every year. So you need your $3 million a year wine shop. I need the $3 million a year wine shop. No, I mean, listen, we're a very successful business and I'm a lot closer to that now than I used to be, right? So there was a time where it was just me and I literally did everything. If a video needed to be recorded, I would haul the video camera into the place. We're a lot closer to that. I had the luxury of taking five months and writing that book from morning to night. And there were other people there who could pick up the slack while I did that. However, there are still things clients want from me and that will change. But any tips you have are welcome because uh, that would be an awesome reality. I have a superpower that I can share with you, which is calendar blocking. Okay. Even if it's just one day a week or two hours a day, uh, where you read, um, then you take notes, and you pop it onto a video. And you do that on a daily basis. Over the course of a year, that's 365 hours of content that you can knock up. If, if you did an hour of reading and um, you know, um, take notes along the way, uh, and then maybe 10-minute video, that's 3,500 hours of video content. And if you pick your niche, pick your fight, and then start developing that. I mean, the, the whole thing around hype, I know that you've got your hype book list and you know, m- maybe something along those lines because it's obviously something that you're passionate about. That might be a way of doing it's, it without impinging on your business. I think it's a great idea. I guess like I do a pretty good job. I mean, I should time block more, but I do a pretty good job of reading a lot and writing a lot. I guess what I was painting was a vision of like, like there's this guy, Dan Sullivan, who runs this thing yeah. called Strategic. Do you know who he is? Strategic yeah. Case, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So he's gotten to the point, I think, where he literally will like coach a class of like really high level exec, you know, top, top entrepreneurs and have a woman sit in the room that he trusts so much that he'll take this guy's ramblings because they're always good ramblings because he's really smart and turn them into, into, Well, he he does one better, which is he gets his collaborators to do all the work. Exactly. Uh, So his book, Who Not How, was written by somebody else based on his content, and he's a co-author. He's hit on to something there as well, which is if you can identify whom you can collaborate with in order to get your outcome met, and that's certainly something I've been working on over the last couple of years, which is uh, I, I fundamentally believe that success, particularly for small uh, business owners will and small businesses, will depend on our ability to collaborate. That's uh, it. So I, I, I'm. It's not so much of a someday problem. Like one day I'll get to it. It's an ideal that I haven't reached yet. Like Dan Sullivan, my unique ability isn't his unique ability, but he's done such a good job of only working in his unique ability because of collaborators. And I feel like I'm still on that journey. See, now you're getting me to bear my soul. You know what I mean? But but I, I feel like I'm still on that journey. I feel like I'm part of the way there. I'm farther than I was. But there's still lots of work I do. I'm going to give you one challenge. A goal without a clear date, a deadline, is generally a wish. By when would you ideally like to be in that position? That's a great question. A year would be great. Okay, put it in the calendar, mark it. Yeah. And then work backwards and put a plan together. It doesn't have to be in detail because we know the pl- it's the planning that matters, not the plan itself. It never survives contact with reality. Right. And work backwards from that uh, date that you put in 
the calendar and what are the steps necessary to get there? Uh, who do you need to surround yourself with in order to make that possible? And you'd be amazed. I mean, I, I've, I've done this with hundreds of clients. And what's really interesting is that date is always way off because inevitably yeah. they're so focused on doing it all of a sudden that it happens in six months instead of two years. Oh, that's that's encouraging. Listen, it's funny because um, I came on here to talk about my stuff and we did that really well, but this opened my eyes a little bit to some some concepts that I've put off for a little while. So yeah. Well, um, on the subject of books, if you could recommend two or three around crowd psychology uh, or uh, you know, other books, obviously there's yours, but uh, other great yeah. books that you'd recommend people read. There are a lot, but I'll give three that that I, I think are kind of foundational. One is Trust Me, I'm Lying by Ryan Holiday. That's yep. a more modern book. But I would say it's no secret that that book inspired me a lot. I mean, he yep. basically gave this primer of how he hacks the media and then says, it's don't use book. it. I'm exposing the media, but really it was a primer of how to hack the media. But it was, it was um, I, I think maybe in some ways, in my own mind anyway, I'm building on what he did and saying, okay, if this one guy could do it, what happens if you looked at every Ryan holiday through history and, and tried to explore what they did? So that's a good one. And then there are two older books that are a little bit deeper, just that because they're old and they're a little bit intellectual. But um, if you can get through them, you'll learn a ton. I mean, one is that book I mentioned, The Crowd by Gustav Le Bon. Not only do you have to get past some of the archaic language, but there's a little bit of racism in the book because it's so old. Like sometimes he'll talk about the character of races, yeah. In, but you could substitute the character of cultures. You know what I mean? But if you can get past that and sort of know that it was a product of its time, yeah. you'll learn an absolute ton. And then there's a book by a, a gentleman named Eric Hoffer, who was a longshoreman who became like one of America's great philosophers. It's called uh, the true, uh, true believer which he basically looks at mass movements and um, figures out what makes mass movements happen. And I mean, everything from early Christianity to communism, to Nazism, to whatever he says, similar to what I say about hype, it's that it's not a function of like what the content of these movements are because there's Christianity versus Nazism are very different but what attracts the earliest people. And we're not talking about the Catholic church in 1200 AD. We're talking about when they were feeding Christians to lions, what would make people join this movement yeah. and dedicate their lives to it? It was a pretty dangerous time. <laughs> right. But yet it grew and it won and it survived because of how fervent these people were. So what made that happen? So final question You've got a golden ticket and you can whisper in the ear of the idiot Michael, age 23. What one piece of sage advice would you have given him that you know he'd have probably ignored? I would say be more intentional about side doors. You know, I mean, I would get really focused on a goal and avoid opportunities that didn't fit that goal. Like when I was in the band, I was just so convinced that that band was the only thing that was going to make me happy that there were all kinds of really cool opportunities that were maybe related to music in an ancillary way or related to writing or related to this. But I just like ignored them or poo pooed them because it wasn't related to my goal. So then when the band thing didn't work out, it was like, what now I, I have to get a corporate job. But if I had, been a little more agnostic about the specifics of what I wanted, I think I could have done better in having a life quicker that I wanted to have. So I'm really kind of religious about that now. Fantastic advice. Michael Shine. thank you. This was such a blast. One of my favorite interviews in a long time. So thank you. Wonderful. Well, likewise, thank you so much. How can people get hold of you? Yeah. So, I mean, the book is available where books are sold. So the Hype Hand book on, on Amazon. I have a website, Michael F. Shine, S-C-H-E-I-N. That's the business. You know, the uh, author website. My company website is microfamemedia.com. And also we were talking about, I have a book uh, club. I send out book recommendations on a regular basis. So that's hypereads.com. And I also keep in touch with people through that. Excellent. Very uh, Ryan Holiday as well. I stole the idea from him, but I'm only right. I, I only have books about hype. He, he has books about whatever he's into. Absolutely. 
No, it's a brilliant idea. We did try to uh, get uh, our publisher to do that when we published our book, but they didn't bite. Okay, so look, if you've enjoyed this episode and you found it insightful, useful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you feel the urge, go to the Apple podcast, scroll down below the fold and leave an honest review. One star, five star, don't care which, just leave an honest review. Now, if you're the owner or the CEO of a tech company between about 10 and 50 million turnover and your goal is to grow your business and achieve genuine, sustainable hypergrowth, so the wings don't come off, uh, people don't start leaving and falling apart with mental health issues, and you want to keep your clients for decades, then get in touch and let's have a brief conversation over Zoom. You can get me at marcus at laughs-last.com. And if you're interested in elevating the sales profession and maybe making sales great again, then get in, in touch about sales of force for good. And we can work together on trying to fix the things that have gone wrong and make them better. So that's Marcus at laughs-last.com or DM me on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling and keep the hype. Bye.